Hi, I'm Jessica Lindberg, and this is the HeartStrong Podcast, where we dive into all the messiness that life has to offer, the joyful, the difficult, and the beautiful. As a woman and mother who's faced tragedy, I want to share stories and perspectives of hope, resilience, and purpose. Join us for our conversation about what truly makes us HeartStrong. On today's podcast, I'm sitting down with one of my favorite women, Victoria Strong. It would have been a bit delusional for me to think that I would have been able to save Gwendolyn. But I also think within that, it can be very freeing because you can get so caught on saving your child that you forget to live now. She was so vulnerable, you know, a simple cold could have killed her but she wanted to live. And so I think because we knew that time with her was limited, we allowed her to get out in the world and live the life she wanted. Victoria is the founder of the Gwendolyn Strong Foundation. She has created a powerful movement encouraging people to never give up, all while advocating for and creating a world that is more inclusive for children born with rare diseases and disabilities. I am fortunate to know Victoria in real life and I'm honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Victoria. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited to be here. Um, You know that I just adore you, and I'm so proud of you in this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So for our listeners who don't know you, will you just introduce yourself to them and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. um, I am a wife and a mother of three amazing girls, a sister, a friend, a writer, a storyteller, a t-shirt designer, (laughs) an advocate, and um, the founder of the Gwendolyn Strong Foundation. You're so many amazing things, and I can't wait for everyone to learn about you. You have such a beautiful and hard story, but mostly an inspiring story. Will you tell us about Gwendolyn and how and why you started the foundation? Yes. So my firstborn, Gwendolyn, um, she was born after a typical pregnancy and um, birth. And um, around three months old, she stopped holding her head up. And so that was the very beginning of our um, journey to to hunt for a diagnosis. Um, It would take uh, three more months. And we spent a month in the hospital, um, our first Christmas, and our first New Year's with a lot of unanswered questions. But eventually, just before her six-month birthday, um, we got the official diagnosis that she had spinal muscular atrophy type 1. Um, and our neurologist literally said, uh, this is the worst-case scenario. There's nothing you can do. No treatment. Take her home and love her for what limited time you have left. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we were devastated, obviously. Um, and it really seemed, you know, came out of nowhere, um, for us They're just, you know, we were expecting a typical life at that point <laughs> as a family. And, um, we were fortunate that, um, we were close enough to Stanford to be able to drive. And we, um, within the two weeks after her diagnosis, we had talked to every, researcher, SMA researcher around the world, and they all gave us very, you know, very similar answers that there wasn't, you know, a miracle drug we could do, but there were um, interventions we could do to help, um, help support her with, you know, breathing and feeding and that she couldn't fly. So we were lucky we could drive to Stanford and get her that help. And so um, we did that. Obviously, our very first priority was to, you know, make sure that she we could get her stable and spend as much time with her as possible. And um, when we went to Stanford, uh, we actually it was night and day. So instead of there's nothing you can do, um, we were given treatment options. Well, you know, not treatment, but options to sustain her life. And we had to make choices. And um, then we also met with a a researcher there who, who was, you know, pursuing um, treatments. And we actually then dove headfirst into really learning about how fortunate we were in the rare disease space that um, so much was actually known about SMA. 
and that um, there were researchers who actually wanted to study it. Um, I know you know in the rare disease mm-hmm. world that is often not the case. And so, um, you know, we kind of, I guess, from right then, we we realized how fortunate we were and we were grateful. And that seemed, you know, a really easy thing to support. Uh, when there's nothing, you mm-hmm. definitely want to um, try to create something. So from her hospital bed, we started lobbying and um, learning our new life. And also um, just, you know, I think it's it was a, our way of grieving. We were processing by taking action. Yeah. And so then everything kind of um, formed from there. And then, you know, for Gwendolyn, I think also, I mean, she, she shaped everything. We were devastated and, you know, just, um, I've, yeah, I just absolutely gutted. And yet for her, nothing had really changed. Um, she still looked at us like we were hilarious and (laughs) (laughs) we were her silly parents who, you know, made funny sounds to her and blew on her belly with raspberry. <laughs> and, um, you know, in even in the hospital setting with tons of, you know, Stanford's a teaching hospital. So there were tons of people who come in and out and they were masked. And uh, she would, you know, she was so trusting and so forgiving and so unbelievably social. And every person who came in, she would make them stop and notice her and say hello and not just go about their daily business. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, seeing that seeing as just a little baby, her personality was just, you know, so bright. Um, that was really grounding and allowed us to focus on, you know, of course it wasn't the life we expected, but it was still her life Mm -hmm. and she was going to guide us, um, in how she wanted to live it. Mm, That's so beautiful. I think that's something that I've learned too, that our kids do guide us. You know, I don't think that I expected that in motherhood, right? You think like we're here to guide them, but (laughs) no, (laughs) that's what we think, I guess. But like every child's writing their own story and it's so cool to learn to surrender to that and to learn from them. I love that part of her. I love that. So you've accomplished so many things, you know, in the last years. And there's so many things that I would love to ask you about, but I'm just curious, like, what, what do you feel most proud of at this point of all the things that you've done that you're like, gosh, I'm so thankful and proud of that? I think it really is, you know, that the beginning choices um, that we made, um, you know, that we took action in the face of nothing, you know, somehow in the midst of so much pain, my husband, Bill and I were able to focus on just that simple core belief that we can all do something. Um, And I think that is, you know, that shaped everything because I mean, doors were definitely not opening. We were, they were slammed in our face. There is nothing you can do or, you know, nope, that's not how it's done. Um, you know, just over and over of no's, but we still kept trying. Um, and I think there also was an element of that was, you know, we accepted that everything we were doing would not save our daughter's life. And we still chose to work towards treatment um, that would help future children and future generations. And I think that that actually, just that acceptance helped us focus on just the good that we can do. Um, and less on feeling desperate to save Gwendolyn. Of course we wanted to, but we were also mm-hmm. really practical. Mm-hmm. And so that allowed us to really see the landscape in a new way and to challenge the system. And when, you know, we would talk to researchers, of course there was emotion there, but it was, it was passion instead of um, desperation. Um, and, you know, I think, just the simple idea, like, you know, saying to them when they would say, no, we can't do that. And we would say, well, what's, you know, what's 
right now is the worst case scenario. So why can't we try? (laughs) Right. And, you know, we understood what it meant to have nothing. And so we wanted future generations to at least have something. Mm -hmm. I think so many times in, you know, advocacy work and having children with rare diseases or just advocating for something, you know, Eric and I have learned this so many times, no, no. And then you go back and say, no, that's not acceptable. What else can we do? You know, and I think that's such a powerful lesson that I've learned too. And the power of saying no back, you know, and saying, yes, there's some, there's gotta be something (laughs) more. And I don't think a lot of people expect that response, but there is something about the perseverance, right. That just, that does, it does make headway. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so often, and this is true of any industry, not just, um, you know, the medical world, but, you know, so much of life is operated on, well, this is just how it's always been done. Um, this is the way we do things. And I think when you, you challenge that and you say, but why? And, um, you know, there, you know, things can change. <laughs> we don't have to, what, what if we looked at it in a new way? Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, I think, challenging for SMA. SMA was lucky because, you know, the gene was discovered 20 years prior to us even coming on the scene. But, um, you know, they had been pursuing kind of the same things for 20 years and they weren't working. And so, you know, we started really pushing to bring in new talent and um, to fund things that were risky, um, that like gene therapy, for example, no one would fund it because mm-hmm. it had been unproven at that point. And we thought, well, if we will, then we will, we will be the ones who take that risk because at some point someone has to be first. Right. And so, um, you know, we worked on that and, you know, we were part of getting it to the FDA approval. And I think that, um, you know, I'm really proud of that, but I I think the most proud is that we just chose to show up in the very beginning because all of that, all of the treatments, I think honestly wouldn't have happened without just that knee jerk reaction to do something. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something that you said about you know, knowing that the work you were doing wouldn't save Gwendolyn. Because I, you know, in my experience in the congenital heart community and even observing in the rare disease community now, like a lot of parents' passion is their kids, right? And it's like their driver. And um, I mean, like you in a different way, you know, Ethan had a rare and sort of experimental procedure on his heart in utero. And it did not benefit him. In fact, it actually made him worse in hindsight. But, you know, we had, like you said, there has to be someone that agrees to something first that has to say, I will try. And, and, and yet knowing that trying that and working for that may not save your child, it's a really bittersweet thing. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about that a little bit more, because I think it's a really important position to take because we can't, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm going to say this as a mother who's done it, um, we can't just be about saving our own children as hard as it is to say that. If we really want to make a change, we have to be, we have to be game for changing the long haul, right? And so yes. I'd just love for you to comment on that a little bit. Yes. I mean, I think, um, you know, part of it was that you know, there was nothing, there was nothing for us to try. And even what was on the horizon was not promising. And so um, within SMA world, like even the experts, they're like, maybe in 20 years, we might have something. So, you know, as much as I am definitely an optimist, I'm also a realist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think that, you know, it would it would have been a bit delusional for me to mm-hmm. think that um, I would have been able to save Gwendolyn. Um, but I also think within that, it, it can be very freeing because um, you can get stuck on trying to so caught on saving um, your child that you forget to live now 
Yeah. And, you know, especially with something like a disease like SMA, well, you know, I think many, she was so vulnerable, you know, a a simple Mm -hmm. cold could have killed her. And, but she wanted to live. And so I think because we knew that um, time with her was limited, we allowed her to, to get out in the world and live the life she wanted. And we worked on all of these things when she didn't need us, you know, when she was Mm -hmm. napping or at night when she was asleep. Um, Thank goodness for email because (laughs) then we can correspond (laughs) without waking people up in different time zones. Um, But our main focus was was living life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that has to be part of the equation too. I also think we were really, really sensitive to Gwendolyn hearing that we were trying to save her or that she was somehow imperfect. Um, Mm. And so those are things that we were really aware of in the beginning that, you know, we, to us, we always wanted her to know that she was perfect just as she was. She, Mm -hmm. we never would have said someday, you know, we're going to, we're working on this. So someday you can walk like that would have just never crossed our our minds because what if it what you know like we never thought that could happen but we would never want her to go through life feeling she was less than mm-hmm. yeah so yeah I think that that living part is is really important too of just being in the present in this acceptance and the surrender I think is yes. a beautiful part of the journey that I will be honest with you, you know, earlier on in my experience with Ethan, you, it's, it's that's a way to fight. You're like mad about it, right? So you're like, I'm going to fight yeah. this and I'm going to do something. But I also think it's important. And I say this a lot in the heart community because unlike the rare disease community, there are a lot of options for children with congenital heart disease, even though parents think there's not enough. And I always want to remind people that you are standing on someone else's shoulders who, when somebody Mm -hmm. said, there is nothing we can do, that parent raised their hand and said, we will try this. And the only reason that your child is thriving and living, and I'm not trying to sound crass, but it's the truth, is because of somebody who, who raised their hand. And I think we all, like we're always standing on someone's shoulders. And I think it's so important to remember that in everything that we do, you know, whether it's the women's right to vote or, you know, it's like someone else paved the way for us. And I just think it's, and it is an honor to be the paver too, you know, which you are for so many families. I absolutely agree with everything you, you're saying. I mean, we definitely benefited from that. I mean, I always think of the many children that um, that died um, mm-hmm. with, you know, like literally not even a researcher wanting to study their disease. And yeah. so, you know, there's always a worst case scenario. And it, mm-hmm. that even then, somebody said, well, I can at least try. Um, you know, I can at least do a little bit of something and it all adds up collectively. Um, you know, and I think of that in the whole rare disease world, um, in general, you know, um, and that became part of our journey too, that, you know, SMA, what was happening with SMA could then potentially help so many other rare diseases. And, you know, so I just think there is so much overlap. Um, with everything we do. Um, and we, yeah, I mean, I just think that everybody has to be willing to try. Um, and you know, and people are, it's incredible. The stories that people who are willing to put their children into clinical trials where nobody knows what will happen. Um, and you know, I just, the, the resilience of the human spirit in any type of medical crisis is just remarkable. It's, I mean, it is, it's beautiful. It is. I think it's, I think I've met some of the most beautiful people I know in those spaces who are, mm-hmm. and I think, and it's just driven by love, you know, we'll do anything for the mm-hmm. people that we love and our, our kids teach us how to do that. I think Absolutely. So, so you created this never give up movement and I think it inspires anyone or I know it inspires me, anyone who watches. And I was I'm wondering if you can tell us about what it means to you and just how you've created and grown this brand and community. Yes. Yeah, so 
Never Give Up was, you know, it was truly created organically. It was, you know, something we said as our family, it became our family mantra. And, you know, it's kind of who we are. Um, And, you know, we also really believe that everyone has a reason to dig deep and tap into their resilience and keep going. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think there was, as far as the brand itself, so, you know, the mantra kind of became first and it was something we just, it, it just was part of, of us and something we said, and it was a rallying cry to other families. Um, and then, you know, as uh, the brand grew out of really wanting something that I would actually want to wear um, mm-hmm. at the time, 10 years ago, and specifically in the rare disease space, the merchandise was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was just nothing that Bill and I would wear. And, you know, we grew up in LA where, of course, we were super casual, but like a t shirt could be really soft and wonderful and, you know, make you feel good and have a design element. Granted, usually those were like a hundred dollars, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so maybe we were a little bit snooty about our clothes, but we'd like, just, we would not wear the bulky Hanes bright yeah. purple t-shirt Stretchy. that we were, yeah. yeah, that we were being given at different events and so forth. And so, you know, we, we came up with, um, this design, we designed it and we wanted, you know, to take out the boxy, ill-fitting, uncomfortable, poorly made and designed and also like unethical, um, manufacturing practices. So we wanted to wear something that we really felt proud of, um, that was fashion forward, um, that our friends would want to wear, that was sourced from high end, um, high quality products and ethically manufactured, Um, and also that then would make a difference and support our nonprofit efforts, um, and would resonate beyond SMA. Um, and so, you know, because I think that's the thing, right? When your, when your door opens to, um, grief and hardship, you suddenly see all the many people in the room and it's not just the exact path you're on. Um, and so I think you know, my heart was just really open to just general uh, pain in the world and people who are really struggling and wanting to give people something to hold on to. And for me, I found, I have found that, you know, sometimes when things are so overwhelming, you really need a tangible to, um, to hang on to. And so it became that simple where just having that t-shirt with the simple words, never give up was that, you know, the thing we put on before a hospital stay or, um, you know, before something that was going to be scary and a, a big appointment or so forth. And then what it does is really amazing is not only is it giving us courage, but then the people that we see, it gives them courage too. And so then suddenly you feel more lifted by, and feel more part of a community in your pain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it all came about in that simple way. And then it took off really well. I think um, people want to support good things. They want to support people who are putting good out into the world. And that's been, um, it's been such a, a incredible journey to see how um, a simple t-shirt has really helped people facing all different things, um, you know, get through and, um, and never give up and carry on. So, um, yeah. And I think as far as like how it's grown, I think we always just go back to that really beginning message, um, or hands on it, everything at this point, I design everything. Um, I pick every piece, um, select all of it. And so I'm always thinking, with, you know, that, that initial thought of would I wear this? Would my friends wear this? Is this something that is, is in the heart of never give up? And Mm -hmm. we've made a few mistakes here and there, but I think, um, I think the whole reason why we started in the first place is always at the forefront of our mind. So. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we wear never give up 
a lot of days around here. Actually, Bodhi just had a shirt on today. So I think, and I love, and I love how you said that, you know, when you go through something, it opens your eyes up to other people. And, you know, I see that a lot in, you know, just cause related groups Mm -hmm. of people. And I really wish that people could expand beyond just what's right in front of them. You know, like I think, like you said, the never give up mantra, the idea of being heartstrong, the idea that these are the things that we can be and grow Mm -hmm. through no matter what we're going through. And that's what unites us. You know, it doesn't have to be cancer over here and SMA over there. You know, it's like we can do this together because we all learn something very similar if we're, you know, paying attention and doing the work with going through these, these things. And so I think you've brought different groups of people together in such a beautiful way through your work. I really love it. And now well, you're and working you as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I, um, you're working on the Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn's playground. And I want to talk about that because I think it's such an important and exciting project. There's nothing, you know, it makes your heart sink when you push your child up to a playground that they can't participate in. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this yeah. project and just why accessibility matters so much. So um, really a lot of it is kind of, well, it's simple. Um, you know, when, f- for the personal side, when the treatments, specifically gene therapy, um, we was making its way through FDA approval and was, we knew was literally like coming down the pike and would be happening any any moment now, it all coincided with Gwendolyn's death. Um, so we kind of, it all was at that time where we've, we were obviously going through like a major life change. Um, and at the same time, we'd accomplished our mission of Mm -hmm. creating treatments and miraculous treatments, um, that didn't exist before. And so there was an almost immediate knowledge of, um, knowing that, uh, for, for me, that, that there was still so much work we could do, but that it probably it would be shifting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for me, I learned through life with Gwendolyn, you know, just specifically that, you know, the area of teaching inclusion, diversity and, and acceptance, that there was so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd always talked about building an inclusive playground because, there aren't any within hundreds of miles of our city and none in our county. And Gwendolyn loved to play, was extremely social. And, you know, we found ways around um, around playgrounds. We, you know, she had a very inclusive life. And we saw, though, how not only, you know, we saw in her life that not only did she benefit from inclusion, but her peers did too. And so you, you know, you take something as simple as play. And I think we can all agree that play is fundamental to childhood Mm -hmm. and yet playgrounds are not expected to provide play for all children. And I, I just think that's like the most base level you can start with. It is. Um, and then I think what happens is for me, you know, building Gwendolyn's playground is of course about access, but it's beyond that. It's that in, in bringing people together, you actually are unraveling, um, the, you're unraveling mindset and assumption and in allowing, I saw it, you know, every day that children are so accepting and they have questions, but once they are able to play with another child who is different from them, they move beyond the, like the, the stop gaps. They, yeah. they are, get to acceptance so much faster um, than adults do. And I think if we give, if we can give them the, the, tools at a young age, they carry that into adulthood. And that's what will help shape, um, reshape, um, I think, a more inclusive world. So, you know, I definitely see, um, just as I did when, you know, when we really started out funding research and, you know, we would get the looks of pity, to be frank, Mm -hmm. of, oh, 
wow, how sad you think you can do that. And then look what we did. Right. (laughs) And so I see that now with the playground, almost the condescending pat on the head, like, oh, isn't that cute? She's building a little playground. Really? (laughs) But it has such a bigger purpose. And, And I know that at some point when, you know, the, that that will, I mean, some people really get it, but, you know, I think the purpose is what my, where my passion is. It's not about, um, you know, really the color of the (laughs) the equipment. (laughs) It's, you know, really about creating community and, um, you know, offering opportunities for, yeah, for real community. I mean, at this point, um, in, in our country, in the world, um, you know, the disabled are segregated, um, you know, really segregated. And I think obviously it is so much better than it was, um, before the ADA and, um, but, you know, even within schools. So Mm -hmm. the right to education was established in 1973. The 504 was created in 77. And yet, Today, most schools do very little to actually integrate um, children with disabilities with the typical classroom setting. Most schools have separate classrooms, and there are so many opportunities. There's opportunities for PE, for example, um, where kids could play all together. Yes, Mm -hmm. some kids will do it differently, but that's the point. you know, I realized, you know, so for Gwendolyn, I realized we were just naive. Um, and that is a big part of why she had a fully inclusive school experience, <laughs> because we just assumed that she would. And um, there was definitely, um, you know, s- there were definitely quizzical, like, well, how are we going to do this? But we just assumed because you know, she was so social. And so for us, it was the absolute right place for her. And it was amazing to me to see how children would modify the recess games to include her because they wanted to play with her. Hmm. Um, But that only happened because she was in their classroom. If they only saw her every now and then, they wouldn't feel that she was a friend. Yeah, And you have to create friendship in order for um, people to, you know, actually see you and mm-hmm. see beyond maybe your differences. And so, you know, I think there's just so much we can do. Of course, um, you know, there are um, definite purposes for specialized classrooms. And I'm not saying that those shouldn't exist. But I just think we can try harder to create social inclusive inclusion in the school setting. We can do things at lunch. We can have big buddy programs. We can have um, recess and um, PE together. And I just think that the part that I that I think is often missed is that a lot of people think that's only to benefit the children with disabilities. And it isn't. It's actually to create empathy and kindness and friendship and acceptance, and to really see the real world. I think mm-hmm. it's an opportunity to create a microcosm of the real world within the school setting. Um, we are all different, and we all come at things from a different way. And I think the sooner you learn um, that difference is okay, the more harmony we will have in our future. <laughs> I I totally agree with you. And I also think one of the things I've learned um, with, you know, Bodhi's rare muscular dystrophy is that these kids have so much going on in their brains. Like I think we discount people's cognitive awareness when their bodies don't work, quote unquote, normally, right? And so we just assume, I mean, Eric and I always say, you know, it would be so easy to just relegate Bodhi to a corner, but he knows everything that we're saying. He knows exactly what's going on. And maybe he screams to to share his opinion because he can't use words, but he knows, you know, and um, I just think that you talk to mothers and they will tell you that, but that is 
something that I think we need to scream from the rooftops in our school systems and our communities is that these kids want to participate. They are yes. participants and we can learn so much from them. Like you said, it's not just a one-way thing. It, it's a two-way street. Yes. And I, I think that's the, you know, I think that right there is the crux of what we have to really actively break down. There are so many presumptions about disability and, um, and there's there's the way our culture looks at the disabled is, is, is really about worth. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there is, People with all sorts of different disabilities have so much to offer. Um, you know, I think right right now uh, we, as a as a culture, we tend to define disability as a tragedy. Yeah. And um, I yes, a child dying is a tragedy, but a child in a wheelchair um, is that a tragedy? Mm-hmm. You know, I understand when that is the first diagnosis that why that would feel that way to a parent. But I think that the the more, you know, and yes, they're prob- they're never going to play be a, you know, major baseball player or, you know, any of those things that maybe you assume for your children, but um I think that when you talk to adults with disabilities, they don't define themselves as a tragedy. They don't see their mm-hmm. lives as tragic. And I think that's the, um, I think that's what we have to start really talking about and, um, and really reframe the way we just think of disability in general. I mean, everything is so weighted. Um, and there's a lot of really awesome adults uh, with disabilities advocating. Um, I think that, I mean, even the, the term disability, we, I think automatically assume physical disability and we, you know, I think, and I think a lot of part is that is the placards and with the, the little graphic has someone in a wheelchair on it, but really what is disability? There's so many, so many things that fall under that category. And I think, just like in the rare disease world, just like in the medical medical world, the more we come together, the more we can get done. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of separating ourselves into all these different groups, which has a purpose, but I think the more we advocate as one group, um, you know, the bigger impact we can have. Uh, if you look at other civil rights movements, you know, those all started in, you know, or really took major, not started, but took major change in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, does the disability civil rights movement started then too. And yet yeah. we still have so much to accomplish. So much we to are do. still so segregated and relegated to um, and marginalized. I mean, some of the things within our system that are legal, legal discrimination that is literally mm-hmm. written into law is just shameful. And um, I think that that's where, you know, there are so many people who have literally never even, you know, never worked with someone with disabilities, never really called someone with disabilities a friend. And that's because they're segregated. So I think the more we can bring people together, the more likely than people with disabilities are to have a seat at the table and actually start help make policy. Um, And, you know, so I think that's where the, the, the root of the playground is, is, you know, it's, uh, all of those things are part of it, you know, so. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, I think that all is so important. And I think what resonated a lot to me with what you said is just, you know, we've relegated people to different parts of the room or the table. And that's, and we're not, we, we're not very good at thinking outside the box. You know, I mean, we're, right. it's COVID right now. And there's so many children who are at home and can't learn through a screen. I mean, my son is one yes. of them. Yes. And we're expecting them to, you know, 
I received papers and things sent home to do puzzles and things that he he's not able to do. And so then I'm as a mother having to recalibrate those things and we're just lumping everyone into one box. And, you know, Eric and I have really been an advocate in our school system for, you know, supporting families so their children can have accessible accessible education through through this yeah. coronavirus. It's a huge problem. And I also think in our system as far as policy goes, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but there are a lot of ways that we as a culture, as a as a government, as a people can support families whose children have these disabilities. I don't think we do a good job of it. Um, and I think we just relegate and be like, oh, they'll just figure it out. You know, Eric and I always feel like, like Jessica and Eric will figure it out. They'll pay for it. They'll do it. And we're kind of at the point where we're like, no, you know, that's not, that's not okay. And I think you're right. Um, you know, we have a long way to go. And I think it's such worthy work. And I, and I, my eyes have been opened up to it so much, especially through the pandemic. Yes. You know, it is so interesting to me um, because obviously I think every child's education has, and every family right now is just, our education system is failing our, all children. Yes, it is. And that has, yeah, I think that has just been really highlighted in COVID. Um, But one of the things that is so fascinating to me is for so long, um, when it came to a lot of children with SMA, um, they can't attend school in person. So because they're too medically fragile Mm -hmm. and I've seen over, you know, the last decade parents begging for, um, virtual type experiences and the amount of excuses has just been extraordinary. And then yet look, snap, what we've all doing. <laughs> right. Virtual school. And even though virtual school and making it work. Now I know it does not work for everyone, but for like, that's the thing is we are not black and white. We mm-hmm. need to be able to think about, you know, learning styles for everyone. And so even when we go back to school, there are still some kids who are going to be better suited working in a virtual environment. And what I'm seeing now is for some of the schools that are going back, the children that are doing well virtually and maybe are immune compromised and need to stay home or their sibling does and so forth. It's like, oh no, now we're closing virtual. Mm -hmm. So where is the in-between? I mean, there are so many technology options now and we need to be thinking, like you said, outside of the box. There can be a a bit of this, a bit of that, and we can make it work. We should be thinking of individualized education instead of, nope, again, this is just how we do it. And I know right. there's an expense to it, but it is amazing to me how with a snap of, you know, a finger because of, you know, because we had to really things have have come out of the woodwork that seemed impossible before. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a shame to take all of this and then now just put it in a closet somewhere. We we should be using these for the kids that still need them. And then we should be differentiating for the kids that don't, you know, it's um yeah. So yeah. And I also think too, you know, one of the things that we've been advocating for is that if there, you know, when there is a stay at home order and a child's eligible for a paraprofessional at school, mm-hmm. that they are eligible one for, for at home because a yes. free and appropriate public education is not yes. mom and dad paying for somebody to come into your house no. to teach your child so you can have a job because then that just bifurcates privilege and everything else, right? So, Absolutely. So, so it's like if your child is eligible for that through their IEP, then they're eligible for that in the home setting. And we need to be flexible in the way we fund things and the way that we support families. And it's just not acceptable anymore to say, well, we just don't do it that way. And yeah. I mean, that's that's where I think that we, like you said, we need to do more individualized education and be aware of how children learn and then support families who are taxpayers, you know, to yeah. do this, to do what works for their children. Yes, I think... I think that is should be the takeaway here, you know? Yeah. Like, um, I think it's it is not acceptable that right now um, home instruction, which many children with disabilities are just automatically put into because the schools are not willing to think outside of the box. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for Gwendolyn, for example, cognitively, she was completely typical. That mm-hmm. was 
the only part of her her body that was not impacted. Um, but because she was so physically disabled, um, that was the assumption that she would have home hospital or home instruction. And you know what is given for that? And this hasn't changed since the 70s, is two hours a week. Yeah. Two hours. Now, how in the world is any child going to ever get the type of education they need with two hours of education? Yeah, they're um, not. They're not. And I think that's the sad thing is it's that goes back to that mindset of, well, that's good enough because they'll never amount to anything anyway. And, you know, for again, I'll speak specifically to SMA because that's what I know best. Um, I know people with SMA type one who have gone on to Harvard, who have wow. um, extraordinary careers. Um, and I also know children with SMA type two, which is is they you know, it's less severe. They can use a typical wheelchair, sitting up wheelchair, and don't usually need any breathing support while they're out and about in the world. So to me, it's very minimal as far as a school setting. And yet they will be put into um, settings that are, it's just appalling to me. They're treated Mm -hmm. as if they have, um, have no um, ability to learn at all mm-hmm. and succeed in the future. Um, and, you know, again, then it's left to the parents to fight for everything um, when we're already fighting for everything with insurance and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, saving our children's lives, yeah. um, you know, on a practical way for yeah. us, we had to save Gwendolyn's life almost daily. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was exhausting. I also think one of the things I've seen, and this is just shameful, um, and we experienced it, but I've I've also just seen it all across the country, is um, school districts tend to make parents f- feel like a burden. Uh, mm-hmm. Children with disabilities are a burden, and that um, that if we demand too much, well, we're just we're just asking too much, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, if we make too many demands, well, just maybe the school setting isn't actually for your child and then they should be relegated to home instruction. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's always this dangling of a threat. Um, they don't necessarily always come out and say it, but it's this, you know, there's, it's just always there this, and you know, that we should just be grateful for what we have. And I mean, for us, there was an element of that. We, Gwendolyn wasn't expected to live to be a year old. So the fact that she was going to school, we were so grateful. So we were, Mm -hmm. but that didn't mean we should accept the bare minimum. We wanted her to have access to a really wonderful education um, and have her needs met. And they were receiving federal funding to make sure that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you and I are on the same soapbox and I, yeah, I mean, you're just echoing everything that is in my heart and, um, and these kids, you know, they have so much to teach us. I think that's like yes. the wrapping up point here is that you and I have both been changed as women, as mothers, as humans by our children. And I know I'm better for it, you know? And yes. so, and, and I'm sure you would agree. So Let's look at them as invitations to to open our eyes, to grow, to make the world a better place. Because that's, I think, one of their purposes. You know, they're teachers, yeah. and yeah. Um, we can all learn from them. You know, and like we have. And just one last point on that. Um, it, it was interesting to me. So Gwendolyn started at a public school at kindergarten, and it was a a, a wonderful success. She. Within two weeks, um, those little children were advocates, her little advocates for her when a new student arrived and would say things like, what's wrong with her? They immediately would chirp of, you know, we're all unique. Nothing's wrong with her. She just uses a BiPAP and a wheelchair. No big deal. We're all different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so then they're saying these things to their parents and they're talking about Gwendolyn and their friendship. And I had at the end of the kindergarten year, I had so many parents quietly come up to me and thank me for the opportunity 
for their child to experience diversity. And it was one of those moments of like, what? (laughs) I didn't expect that. But now in this place, I can see, I know exactly what they were talking about. They saw that their child was growing as a human and and they liked the growth that they saw. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I, like you said, it is an opportunity. So yeah. So you, I mean, you have this beautiful story and you, you're such an insightful woman. And I'm wondering if, you know, you can share with us, like if you could give a message to your younger self, you know, and what, knowing what you know now and the, the views that you have, the things that you've gone through, what would you tell her? Well, I think that, um, I think I would just tell myself to to just be confident in who you are and just be yourself and know that that's enough, Mm -hmm. um, that your instincts are strong, listen to them and they, they will get you through. Yeah. That's good. That's good. (laughs) So no, I think those are, and that's simple, but, but sometimes hard to actualize, right? Listening to ourselves, Mm -hmm. being confident in ourselves. So I think that's really good advice. For me, when Gwendolyn was diagnosed, or even when I was just pregnant and, um, you know, the idea of becoming a mother, I had a lot of self-doubt and worry Mm. that, oh, was I going to be good enough? And, um, you know, definitely I was not, I had, there was no manual for what we were facing with Gwendolyn. And I think now I just, I learned to lean into those, my instincts and, um, and they, yeah, and they allowed, they helped me become the fighter that I needed to be yeah. for her. Yeah, I love that. Listening to yourself. It's such a powerful thing to learn how to do. So you have three beautiful girls, two living in your house right now, and you running this organization and you're busy. <laughs> I'm curious if yeah. you can <laughs> tell us, you know, I think sometimes people think, there's like some magic pill to, to handling yeah. all these things. There's not right. We, no. you and I both know that, but tell me like how you juggle it or, you know, just it's something that you've learned to kind of help you. I know there's never complete balance. That's an oxymoron, but how do you, how do you juggle all of these things? Yeah. The juggle is like, I think the ultimate, um, it's just never within our grasp, truly. No, it's not. <laughs> but, but I do think, you know, that was actually something that, um, you know, Bill and I were talking about a lot last year before COVID um, because we were struggling. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to prioritizing and what is what is essential that needs to happen, what is um, a nice to have, um, mm-hmm. what fills us up individually as a family, you know, those are the things that we need the priority. Um, and then I think also getting help, asking for help. Um, I definitely would rather spend time with my children than cleaning my toilet. So Mm -hmm. we get help in that area. And, um, you know, there are just those things where, where we can make, um, choices, um, and, we have an incredible babysitter that um, we actually found just before COVID. And that was all because we're, everything felt very out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing a lot more. My, you know, Bill was working almost every evening. I was doing, having to do evening events. And so it was definitely not working. And so we found her and then she's just been such a huge asset in our life now so that in all of this chaos of the new, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've still been able to, um, focus on the foundation and, um, yeah. And just, yeah, I think knowing that I, you don't have to do everything that creating the balance means sometimes letting go and you're not the person providing, um, something, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't, she makes dinner for my kids at night. Um, and that's okay. I don't need to be the one to make them every single meal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as women, we put a lot of guilt on our, on our, our shoulders. Um, and I know I did and for a mm-hmm. long time. Um, and now I have learned, yeah, to that receiving help is helps create that balance. It does. And I also think, you know, 
your work feeds you, right? As a woman and as a yes. person. And so it's imp- just as much in, as motherhood is so important and we all, you know, want to invest all of ourselves into our kids. It's okay to say, this work really fuels me. And so I'm going to take some time and I'm going to do this work and someone else is going to yes. do these other things, right? Yes. Um, and that took me a while to, um, I think specifically, I had a lot of guilt uh, about, you know, well, here I have these two healthy children. Why mm-hmm. aren't they everything? Why aren't they fulfilling my every need? And mm-hmm. it, so it did. It took me a while to just come to believe that, well, one, a lot of my work is my way of mothering Gwendolyn still. And yeah. and then there's also just it's a passion and it fills me up. And that's that is OK. Mm-hmm. So. And and you're created for it, you know. So yes. So we want to be doing the things that we're we're multifaceted humans as women. We're not just you know mothers, or you know we don't just yes. have to clean the toilets. We get to yeah. to contribute <laughs> in other ways, right? I think that is something that a lot of women need to hear. So um, I love that. So to kind of wrap up here, like this is the HeartStrong podcast where we, you know, want to talk about how do we grow through the challenges of our lives? How do we learn from other people? And I know that all of our listeners are going to learn so much from you today, but can you tell me something that helps you overcome your challenges and live HeartStrong in your own life? Yes. I think that, um, I think my life with Gwendolyn really grounded me Hmm. and, you know, I learned deepest lessons of accepting what you cannot control while Mm -hmm. honing in on what you can. And that our interpretation of what is happening to us or of what is, um, our reaction to those outside factors, that's what actually shapes our life. Um, Not the actual event. Of course, that's, that's the backdrop, but our reaction to it is really what shapes the future. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I think focusing on what, what I can control, my attitude, my perspective, um, finding gratitude, even when things are really bleak, um, that's what allows me to feel less out of control. And, you know, then that's what centers me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, it is, I think that, you know, you said earlier, the surrender, surrendering to what is accepting it. And it doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I definitely believe that, you know, the per- perception, I'm not trying to say we should be Pollyanna. I actually think that, the acceptance is actually being really honest. Yes, it um, is. And having, you know, being honest with myself about how I feel, and but allowing all of it, allowing all of those feelings, and then shaping how I'm, what I choose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, even in like COVID has, COVID has really reminded me of my life with Gwendolyn mm-hmm. because it's, you know, and there are so many lessons that, you know, a lot of people are talking about, which I, I think is really wonderful that they are allowing these, this major life change. They're allowing the lessons to come forth. They're listening to their own perspective and they're seeing, wow, you know, I have so many friends saying, I'm really enjoying more time with my family or, Mm -hmm. you know, those simple things of playing games more. And, you know, those are the things that, if you only look at everything with, um, you know, as negative or just the bad things, that is what your life will become. And, yeah. you know, I think Gwendolyn's life with Gwendolyn taught me, like you can be going through um, the darkest of days and it can be beautiful. Our life mm-hmm. together was beautiful. And yes, there was, trauma and there were really hard things, but I would go back to it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it will always be some of my most treasured days. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I think what you said before, like surrender is not Pollyannish. It's really courage. 
you know, it yes. takes total courage to do that. And it's a choice. And I mean, yeah. you clearly made that choice in your life. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I always love talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. I always love learning more about Gwendolyn <laughs> and um, inspired by your work. And I just always feel like a kindred spirit with you because I'm like, every time you say something, I'm like, yes, girl, you go. Keep going. So <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I feel yeah. like um, we were connected in another life somehow. I think so. <laughs> you may have been. Our perspectives and the... Um, even our passions are so similar. <laughs> they are. So thank you so much again. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest, Victoria Strong, for joining me on the HeartStrong podcast. You can follow Victoria on Instagram at NeverGiveUpOrg or at N-E-V-E-R-G-I-V-E-U-P-O-R-G. And make sure you check out her apparel shop where 100% of the proceeds support the Gwendolyn Strong Foundation. You will love her merchandise and be inspired by all she does. You can also check our show notes. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. And a super special thank you to our producer, Allison Cohen, and our sound engineer, Jared McCammon. And can you do me a favor? Share this podcast with a friend today and give them some inspiration for their week. Join us next week on the HeartStrong Podcast. Podcast.